Then the high priest and all his associates who were members of the party of the Sadducees were filled with jealousy. They arrested the apostles and put them in public jail. Them out. Go, stand in the temple courts, he said, and tell the people all about this new life. At daybreak they entered the temple courts, as they had been told, and began to teach the people. When the high priest and his associates arrived, they called together the Sanhedrin, the full assembly of the elders of Israel, and sent to the jail for the apostles. But on arriving at the jail, the officers did not find them there, so they went back and reported. We found the jail securely locked with the guards standing at the doors, but when we opened them, we found no one inside. On hearing this report, the captain of the temple guard and the chief priests were at a loss, wondering what this might lead to. Then someone came and said, Look, the men you put in jail are standing in the temple courts teaching the people. At that, the captain went with his officers and brought the apostles. They did not use force because they feared that the people would stone them. The apostles were brought in and made to appear before the Sanhedrin to be questioned by the high priest. We gave you strict orders not to teach in, his, in this name, he said. Yet you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching and are determined to make us guilty of this man's blood. Peter and the other apostles replied, We must obey God rather than human beings. The God of our ancestors raised Jesus from the dead, whom you killed by hanging him on a cross. God exalted him to his right ha own right hand as prince and saviour, that he might bring Israel to repentance and forgive their sins. We are the witnesses of these things, and so is the Holy Spirit, whom God has given to those who obey him. When they heard this, they were furious and wanted to put them to death. But a Pharisee named Gamaliel, a teacher of the law who was honoured by all the people, stood up in the Sanhedrin and ordered that the men be put outside for a little while. Then he addressed the Sanhedrin, Men of Israel, consider carefully what you intend to do with these men, to do to these men. Some time ago, Theodos appeared, claiming to be somebody, and about 400 men rallied to him. He was killed. All his followers were dispersed, and it all came to nothing. After him, Judas the Galilean appeared in the days of the census and led a band of people in revolt. He too was killed, and all his followers were scattered. Therefore, in the present case I advise you, leave these men alone. Let them go, for if their purpose or activity is of human origin, it will fail. But if, if it is from God, you will not be able to stop these men. You will only find yourselves fighting against God. His speech persuaded them. They called the apostles in and had them flogged. Then they ordered them not to speak in the name of Jesus and let them go. The apostles left the Sanhedrin rejoicing because they had been counted worthy of suffering disgrace for the name. Day after day, in the temple courts and from house to house, they never stopped teaching and proclaiming the good news that Jesus is the Messiah. In those days, when the number of disciples was increasing, the Hellenistic Jews among them complained against the Hebraic Jews because their widows were be, being overlooked in the daily distribution of food. So the twelve gathered 
all the disciples together and said, It would not be right for us to neglect the ministry of the word of God in order to wait on tables. Brothers and sisters, choose seven men from among you who are known to be full of the spirit and wisdom. We will turn this responsibility over to them and will give our attention to prayer and the ministry of the word. This proposal pleased the whole group. They chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit. Also Philip, Prochorus, Nicanor, Timon, Parmenes and Nicholas from Antioch, a convert to Judaism. They presented these men to the apostles who prayed and laid their hands on them. So the word of God spread. The number of disciples in Jerusalem increased rapidly and a large number of priests became obedient to the faith. Thanks, Lois. Uh, look, kids, if, if, if you would like, if you came to Annie, um, there are some colouring in uh, sheets and some boards and some pencils, if you would like. So feel free to, to, to wander um, through to Annie. Thanks, Annie. You can distribute. And before I begin, let me pray. Father, this evening, uh, may your word dwell in us and by your Holy Spirit bear much fruit uh, for your glory in our lives. Amen. Uh, I was involved in a Christian group at uh, university uh, and one year we were preparing for what they call O-Week, Orientation Week, um, and we hung up these signs that read, Jesus, uh, liar, lunatic, or Lord? Um, it's a question that C.S. Lewis and others have posed to, to challenge people's opinion on exactly who Jesus was. It wasn't enough to acknowledge that Jesus was a great moral teacher because his claims were such that either he was a liar, either he was, or he was, he was a lunatic, or he was in fact Lord. Either he deceived others, or he was deluded himself, or he was in fact divine. And we were trying to provoke some engagement from passing students as we asked who they thought uh, Jesus was. And as the morning got underway, um, I got called into the equivalent of the principal's office. Uh, and she began by saying this, these signs are completely unacceptable. They're offensive and I want you to take them down immediately. And we're going to contact you in the coming weeks to follow this matter up. Now, I felt very, very uncomfortable. Uh, but I wanted to probe a little bit further because, after all, this was a Catholic university. And so what was so offensive? And she replied, that your group is suggesting that Jesus could have been a liar or a lunatic. Right? She didn't quite understand what we were going for. So I tried to explain to her, no, no, no actually, we're trying to su suggest that no, he, he wasn't a liar, he, he wasn't a lunatic, but he was, in fact, Lord. You know what she said? That's even worse, she said. That's even worse. As a university, we're inclusive, accepting and tolerant of many faiths, and that you and your group are claiming that Jesus is Lord will offend others. She wanted it both ways. But at the end of the day, uh, she didn't want anyone uh, to claim that Jesus was in fact Lord. 
Now, this illustration is actually going to serve us at a number of different levels today, but now I want to use it as an example of the way that conflict, any conflict, can make us feel incredibly uneasy. Our hearts begin to beat faster. or may skip a few beats altogether. Uh, our blood pressure rises, uh, and, and we may even begin to sweat. And we may even get this sickening feeling in our stomachs as we sort of feel uh, frustrated and, and nervous and anxious all at the same time. I felt all these things. Conflict makes us feel incredibly uneasy. And yet we face it all the time in all sorts of different contexts, in our communities, in our workplaces, in our schools, in our universities, in our families, but also in our churches. And the early church here in Acts had to deal with conflict too, both external and internal conflict. But they didn't respond to, the, to, to conflict the way that we might. In the midst of these, these conflicts, they were led by certain priorities, that Jesus is Lord and that he be known. Um, there are two conflicts. Lois read for us chapter 5, 17 through 6, 7. There are two conflicts in today's passage. One external and one internal. How did the apostles in the church respond to these conflicts and what were their priorities throughout? The first conflict sounds sort of familiar. There's actually some overall parallels here between uh, this chapter and chapter 4. Remember when Peter and John healed the lame man? There are some overall parallels here. Yet Luke makes it clear that a fresh stage of the controversy has been reached. I won't often do this, but I've put together a table to illustrate this, okay? I'm hoping you can read all this to illustrate the rising opposition and increasing antagonism. That is really small. There you go. Whereas previously the hierarchy responded to just one healing, the healing of the layman, now there were reports of crowds coming from all over and all of them being healed in verse 15, just a few verses before our reading began this evening. Previously only Peter and John were put into prison. Now all the apostles are put into prison. Previously, uh, they were released with just a warning. Now, the Sanhedrin wanted to put them to death and they are released only after being given a flogging. And so the opposition to both message and its messengers is slowly increasing and it's going to climax for us next week. But on this occasion, what, what was the problem? What was the problem? We read in verse 17 of chapter 5 that the Sadducees were filled with jealousy, presumably because of all the new believers that were coming to the faith in verse 14 of chapter 5. But also uh, a large number of people who flocked to the apostles for healing, verses 15 and 16. But actually it wasn't so much the healings that angered the Sanhedrin, it was the apostles' teaching and uh, their preaching. And the Sadducees try and put a stop to this. They arrest the apostles and put them in jail, but unseen or unnoticed by the guards, an angel opens the door of the jail and leads the apostles out. At which point the angel instructs them to continue their teaching and preaching ministry. Verse 20, the angel says, Go stand in the temple courts, he said, 
and tell the people all about this new life. They have been, in a sense, recommissioned and they are to take their stand at the centre of Israel's national and religious life. And what follows is a slightly comical scene where the Sanhedrin, the full assembly of the elders of Israel, uh, send for the apostles, but of course they're not there. And someone informs them in verse 25. Look, the men you put in jail are standing in the temple courts and teaching the people. And so the guards sort of quietly bring the apostles back before the Sanhedrin. There are no uh, questions asked about the miraculous escape. There are no niceties. There are no greetings. The high priest gets straight to the point. Verse 28. We gave you strict orders not to teach in this name, he said. Yet you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching and are determined to make us guilty of this man's blood. Here is the heart of the conflict. Their authority... The apostles were undermining the authority of the temple leaders. And put yourself in the apostles' shoes for a second, okay? Just just really try and imagine this. Can you feel yourself becoming increasingly uneasy? But in the midst of this conflict, what were their priorities? In their own words, we must obey God rather than human beings. We've come across this before, haven't we? Elsewhere in the New Testament, it's clear that Christians, we're called to submit, we're called to obey, we're called to respect those in authority, but there is a line in the sand. And that line is when we're told to do something or stop doing something that's going to compromise our faith or our mandate to make disciples of all nations. And in these cases, God's authority supersedes all human authorities. That much is straightforward. And you might be sitting there thanking God that it has not yet come to that in this country. Or has it? We are constantly being told to be inclusive, accepting, and tolerant of all faiths. And to say or imply anything to the contrary can elicit some pretty strong responses. And so while we don't yet have the same explicit instruction from our leaders to stop preaching Jesus as Lord, we feel the implicit pressure not to, don't we? We we feel that pressure. And it's very easy to succumb to that pressure. After all, most of us are conflict avoiders. But in the midst of this conflict, the apostles were led by a priority to obey God rather than human beings. Do we share that same priority? In a context and a culture where we feel the pressure to be silent and passive Christians, do we submit to that expectation that society has of us? Or do we obey God? Because the Great Commission is ours too, right? When your faith comes into view, when your faith comes into question, when your faith runs into opposition, what's your priority? Your safety? Your reputation? Your future? 
Is your priority to keep the peace at all costs? Now, we, we did end up taking those signs down, right? Jesus, liar, lunatic, or oh Lord. We, we, we took them down. Perhaps, perhaps we shouldn't have. It didn't stop us, though, from having those same essential conversations, even if we were now feeling um, extremely uneasy about it all. But can we honestly say that we hold the same priorities as the apostles did, even when our faiths are scrutinised or patronised or even as we are pressurised or victimised? We need to get our priorities straight so that when we do find ourselves in a conflict of this nature or as we face opposition, we know who, above everyone, and despite what comes, we ought to obey. We need to prepare ourselves for the time that as a church we're told to tone it down a bit. Or when as a church we're told to stop evangelising. Or as an employee you are told you must work seven days a week. Or when as a high school student you're told to stop gathering people over lunch to, to read the Bible. Or when as a retiree, when society tells you that finally, finally, your time and your money are yours alone to do with as you wish. No, 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 the Great Commission is yours too. Now, this isn't a conflict management seminar, okay? So beware, if the Apostles' priority becomes our priority, it may not actually resolve the conflict. In fact, it may pour fuel on it, all right? Verse 33, when they, that's the Sanhedrin, heard this, they were furious and wanted to put them to death. And uh, you can read the rest of that account, perhaps in growth groups this week, but in the end the Sanhedrin adopt a sort of cautious wait-and-see approach and release the apostles after having them flogged and ordering them once again to stop speaking in the name of Jesus. And the result is this, verses 41 and 42. The apostles left the Sanhedrin rejoicing because they'd been counted worthy of suffering disgrace for the name. And day after day in the temple courts and from house to house, they never stopped teaching and proclaiming the good news that Jesus is the Messiah. God's word cannot and will not be kept in chains. The second conflict this evening is an internal conflict, right? That is within the church. What was the problem? Chapter 6, verse 1. In those days when the number of disciples was increasing, the Hellenistic Jews among them complained against the Hebraic Jews because their widows were being overlooked in the daily distribution of food. You see, at that time, and to an extent even today, widows were an extremely vulnerable section of society. And here, the non-Jewish widows—that uh, that was the Jewish, uh, sorry, the widows that may have been from Greek descent—were being overlooked, quite possibly discriminated against. While those widows, Christian widows of Jewish descent, were actually being pretty well looked after. Can you understand how this? was potentially an extremely divisive conflict. 
You understand that? And in the midst of this conflict, what are the apostles' priorities? In their own words, prayer and the ministry of the word. You see, this conflict not only threatened to be divisive, but it also threatened to divert the church's attention. Verses 2 to 4. So the twelve gathered all the disciples together and said, it would not be right for us to neglect the ministry of the word of God in order to wait on tables. Brothers and sisters, choose seven men from among you who are known to be full of the spirit and wisdom. We will turn this responsibility over to them and will give our attention to prayer and the ministry of the word. And so some say the first deacons are chosen. Now the apostles are not implying that the ministry of distributing food was beneath them, right? We know this because of who they chose, the caliber of the men that they had chosen. But they are recognizing the priority of their own ministry, prayer and the ministry of the word. They were especially commissioned by Jesus to be witnesses, and it wouldn't be right, it wouldn't be appropriate, it wouldn't be appropriate for them to neglect that ministry. If they had done, then they would have had to have stopped doing the best thing for the sake of a good thing. Right? Every yes is a no. Do you understand how that works? And so they delegate this responsibility to others. And notice that this, this proposal pleased everyone, pleased the whole group. In the, midst, in the midst of this conflict, which they could have easily have spread like a cancer through that early and growing uh, and young church, the apostles were led by their priority to preach and to pray. Do we as individuals and do we as a church share those priorities? Let me ask you a question, a rhetorical question. What do you think is the most important thing our church does. There are lots and lots of good things to be done, right? But what is best? Just the other day, we had a, um, I don't know what you call them, a charity salesman. Does it, do people know what I'm talking about when I say charity salesman? Yes? Getting nods? Okay, good. We had a charity salesman come and visit us and, and Miriam answered the door and he did his spiel and he tried to generate discussion and, and find some common ground. And during the course of the conversation, Mim mentioned that her husband uh, worked at a church. Now, normally, this is a conversation stopper, okay? But in this case, his face lit up and he said something like this, well, this is what you're all about. Now, I can't even, I, I can't even remember the charity, neither can Miriam. It's terrible. Uh, I can't even remember what the charity was for. It was probably a worthy cause. But it was not the best cause. Of course we're called to care for and be generous to those who are needy or marginalised or oppressed, but it's not what we're all about. Whatever else we do as a church, however we spend our energy however we spend our time, however we spend our money, our priority must be prayer 
and the proclamation of the gospel. Those two things go hand in hand. The question is asked in different ways, right? You've probably heard a version of this. Why can't you Christians just be nice people? Help help out those who are in need and stop evangelising. Well, because our priority is prayer and the proclamation of the gospel. From the very earliest days, this has been the priority for the church. You see, we in this room are aware or of an even greater need that needy people have. The need to be reconciled to God. See, Jesus didn't go to the cross to feed widows. He went to the cross in place of widows. It's a gospel of Jesus. The good news of Jesus that the church has been especially entrusted to. We need to get our priorities straight so that when we do find ourselves in conflict of this nature, internal conflict, that can so easily divide and distract the church, we all have the same priorities. We're all on the same page. Any internal conflict, whether it be organisational or relational, the priority that Jesus be known ought to shape our response. Do you have that priority? Do we as a church have that priority? See, the early church were prepared to adapt and adjust and alter their procedures, their plans, even maybe their traditions, their developing traditions. They were prepared to develop new posts of responsibility in response to genuine needs and for, the, and for the sake of the ongoing proclamation of the word of God. You see, the structures that we have, the structures that we set up, serve that ultimate purpose. Right? They are not an end in themselves. They are a means to an end. The committee of management serves that end. The diaconate serves that end. Any administrative assistant serves that end. This site facilitator job serves that end. In fact, many ministries in and around the church serve that end. Let's not lose sight of that. Every Christian ought to value a rightly ordered church. The Bible spends a great deal of time talking about Church order and church offices, and Act 6 here makes plain why a rightly ordered church is so important. Biblical order preserves church unity and allows for the effective and efficient teaching and preaching of God's word. To borrow an illustration, here we have a trellis. I don't know what a trellis is. And a vine. Like the trellis serves the vine, church structure serves the gospel. Make sense? We create and maintain the physical and organisational structures and programs 
to support the growth of the gospel through prayerful preaching and teaching uh, of God's word, to see people converted and to see people grow to maturity as disciples of Christ. We can do lots of good things, right? But we must make sure that we're doing the best thing. We must make sure that as a church, we keep the main thing the main thing. Verse 7 here functions as a conclusion to both of these conflicts. Get this. In light of the way that the apostles dealt and faced and confronted these conflicts, this this is the conclusion. So the word of God spread and the number of disciples in Jerusalem increased rapidly and a large number of priests became obedient to the faith. Priests, quite possibly Sadducees. If you were not a Christian and if you're really just sort of testing the waters, maybe it's... Uh, maybe, maybe you're nearly there, maybe you've been on a bit of a journey and you're not quite sure. It must strike you strange right, that Christians have such priorities. One, to obey God rather than human beings. And two, pray in the proclamation of the gospel. But consider what has come of this church, this relatively small church that we find here in Acts. Two millennia later, there are an estimated 2 billion Christians worldwide. Consider the words then of Gamaliel to the Sanhedrin. Verses 38 and 39. If their purpose or activity is of human origin, it will fail. But if it is from God, you'll not be able to stop these men. You'll only find yourselves fighting against God. If you're in that boat this evening, then perhaps you do need to consider who Jesus is. Was he a liar? Was he a lunatic? Or was he in fact Lord? Uh, we're going to pray um, just in the, in the quietness of our own minds and hearts. Um, uh, the Lord's Prayer, actually, as it comes up on a video in just a second, Uh, as a way to remind ourselves how Jesus taught us to pray and the priorities that Jesus had and and the priorities that we as a church, we as individuals ought to have uh, as well.